reality TV is not reality. Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Holy crap, dude. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today I'm going to do what I'm calling an explainer episode of the podcast. I'm going to explain a couple things to you. What I want to explain are a couple of real world things that are going on that you may or may not be aware of, that you may or may not care about, but that I care about and are kind of important. So I wanted to put this explainer out there because people have said I can explain things pretty clearly and pretty succinctly. And so if you have any questions about something that may seem complicated, if I know anything about it, I can usually clear it up for you. So that's what today's episode is about. The two things that I want to explain, and they're not really related at all, but they're both in the news these days, and they should be getting more coverage as far as I'm concerned. But the first is the writers-actors strike that's going on in Hollywood right now. And the other is the indictment process. And I want to talk about indictments because of the indictments against Trump. The two have nothing to do with each other, but they're both in the news these days, so I wanted to tackle them both. I also wanted to make this episode easy to navigate through. If you don't want to hear about the writer's strike, skip ahead to the second half. If you don't want to hear about Trump's indictments, don't listen to the second half. I wanted to talk about the writer's and actor's strike because it's an important thing that's affecting entertainment in this country. To be clear, I'm 100% on the side of the writers and the actors, and I'll explain why as we go through this discussion. The why explanation goes back 40 to 50 years. And the why explanation is an example of why it's important to understand history. It's an example of why it is important to keep in mind what has come before, what has been said before, what has been done before. I mean, that's true in just about any field, but it's especially true with the Hollywood thing. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm not a member of either of the unions or any of the unions involved. I'm not a Writers Guild member. I'm not a member of the Screen Actors Guild. But I understand what they're striking for, and I appreciate it, and I fully support it. And here's why. The short version is you have massive corporations taking advantage of artists and unwilling to pay them for their work. I don't want you to think about the big names. I don't want you to think about the Harrison Fords, the Margot Robbies, the Ryan Goslings, the Meryl Streeps. They get their money. But there are a lot of actors out there who are just what they call working actors. They do a commercial. They do a bit part on a show. They do a background role. Those actors comprise 90% of Hollywood actors. And they don't make a lot of money. And they don't get paid a lot of money. Also on strike are the writers. The writers write, obviously. They write screenplays. They edit screenplays. They brainstorm ideas. They write pilot scripts. They write series. Any series that you've liked has been written by a union writer, somebody in the Writers Guild of America. Whether it's a movie, whether it's a TV show, any writer in Hollywood is a member of the Writers Guild of America. And the writers are the ones who've given us shows like The Sopranos, Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad. I mean, they've also given us My Mother, The Car, and Starsky and Hutch, but they've given us everything that we watch. And good, bad, or indifferent, if it wasn't for writers, we wouldn't have the entertainment that we have. We wouldn't have quality products like Game of Thrones, or The Sopranos, or West Wing, or Ozark, or any of the shows that you like to watch. Now, there are a lot of moving parts here that caused the strike. The writers went on strike first, the actors went on strike in solidarity with the writers. They're on strike for similar reasons, but not identical reasons, because the writers do one thing, the actors do another. 
Now, the information that I'm going to give you is stuff that I've read over the months that this has been going on. I've gotten it from the writers themselves, the actors themselves. I've read news articles. I've watched the people talk. I've read the writers themselves posting things on Twitter, on Tumblr. I've watched the actors speak about these issues. I've put together what's going on. And so I'm going to give it to you so you understand it. One of the issues with the writers is that the nature of scripted television has changed. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know this, but you do have to have a sense of history or you have to have been there since the beginning, or at least for the past three or four decades. If you go back to the 60s and the 70s, television shows would have seasons that lasted between 25 and 35 episodes. We've talked about this before. If you look at a show like The Sopranos, which is an HBO show, those seasons were like 8, 10, 12 episodes long. If you go back to 1966, a season of Gomer Pyle was 35 episodes long. So that's a difference. If you look at Netflix, you see all these limited series all over the place. Six episodes, eight episodes, ten episodes. Disney Plus has a bunch of six-episode series. I mean, is it really a series if it's only six episodes? Is a six-episode series more like a long, long movie? I don't know. But the streaming services have created this kind of gray area where these shows fall into. And this gray area of show isn't staffed like the old TV shows used to be staffed. If you go back to the old Gomer Pyle show, or you go back to Starsky and Hutch, or you go back to the West Wing, you had a writer's room, and you had a bunch of staff writers. And I'm just going to pick a number out of the air here, because every show is different. But let's say the writer's room had 10 writers in it, and then there was one head writer. So the head writer would throw out the ideas for the week, And the 10 writers on staff would have to come up with whatever storylines fit into that idea. I'm oversimplifying it, I know. There's a lot more to the process. But stay with me. This is for the purposes of just giving you a general explanation. You had a writer's room. You had a set staff. You had a process. And that's how they would produce the show. What has happened over the years, though, is that the seasons have shortened. So you don't need as many writers. What has also happened is that the shows are confined to streaming services. With network TV shows, you could get certain ratings. You could know how many people were watching it. With the streaming services, they never tell you that. They keep that information secret. Go try to get that information from Netflix or Disney Plus or any of the other streaming services. So you don't know how many people are necessarily watching a show. Also, with a six-episode limited series, you don't need a fully staffed writer's room, at least according to the companies producing these series. That's one of the issues. You don't have a staff of 10 anymore. You have a head writer, and then you might have two interns come in and two freelancers come in. So instead of a staff of 10, you have one writer, two freelancers, and two interns doing the job that used to be done by a staff of 11. What has also happened is that on some shows, they hire people on a freelance basis, and they flesh out an outline for the first eight episodes of a show. And then they let go all of the freelancers and leave just one or two people working as staff writers to polish up the scripts and the ideas that were put into place by the staff of freelancers that they just let go. That's one of the other things that has happened. What is also at risk of happening is that the studios want to feed scripts into artificial intelligence and have artificial intelligence generate scripts. Now, I don't know if you've worked with AI, but AI does not write well. AI writes crap. Now, that's not to say that a lot of Hollywood writers also don't write crap. They do. I've watched much of it. But it's a different kind of crap, and that's part of the process, I guess. But computer crap is different from human crap. Because what they want to do is they want to have AI write a script 
And then instead of hire a writer to rewrite the script, they want to hire an editor to punch up the script, which eliminates the writer from the process. That's one of the other issues that the writers are dealing with. The actors have some similar things going on. The studios, for instance, have proposed using AI, artificial intelligence, to scan one of those background actors. They want to scan that actor and then use that scan in perpetuity. It's one of my favorite legal phrases. That means forever. And they only want to pay that actor one time. So I'm Joe Actor. The studio puts out a call for bit players to stand on the sideline of this basketball game. And then they scan me standing there. And then they pay me my $100 for showing up. And then they can use that scan of me for the rest of whatever in any production they choose. A hundred years from now, they can still use a scan of me standing on the sidelines. But they only paid me my $100. As you might expect, the actors don't think that's fair. And I'll tell you why it's not. If the studio makes a movie with me on the sidelines of a basketball game, and they pay me my $100, and that's all they ever pay me, but they continue to use that picture of me, that scan of me, in 10 movies in the future, and they make a billion dollars off of all of those movies. Why do they get to keep making money off of my image and I don't get a dime of it? That's the issue. One of many, of course. My face is all that I've got. If you want to use my face, you should pay me for the right to use my face. And if you want to use my face 10 times, you should pay me 10 times. That's basically the issue. Again, one of many. Now, to understand why this is an issue, let me take you back to the beginning. Well, let me take you back to the middle, because this has been an ongoing dispute in Hollywood for decades. How do you compensate the actors? And how do you compensate the writers? And I know I'm jumping around a little bit. The writers want to have fully staffed writers' rooms. They don't want to have these freelancers. They want to have a production, have a set number of people having to work there. They don't want AI-generated scripts. They want original scripts that they have to work from. The actors want to be paid for everything that they appear in. They don't want to have to sign off on their images being used once and then never having to be paid again. They don't want AI-generated actors showing up in movies. These are the general issues that are in play. Now, let me take you back to, as I said, the middle. 40 or 50 years ago, before there was cable, before there was internet, before there were DVDs, before there was VHS, before you could buy seasons of your favorite TV program and take it home and watch it whenever you wanted to, before you could stream something on demand... Once upon a time, and I've talked about this, when you watched a TV show, you got to see it on the night that it aired. And if you happen to miss that, the only other time that you could see it was in summer reruns. Because what happened is, going back to that Gomer Pyle show that I was talking about, they would have 35 new episodes over the course of the year. And then in the summertime, they would rerun some of those episodes. And back when that was happening, the actors back then were upset that they weren't getting compensated for the second time that the show would air in the summer reruns. So to make a very long story short, 40 years ago, the contract that the actors and the Hollywood production companies entered into included residuals. You've heard that word, residuals. Every time a show aired in rerun or in syndication, that's after the network sells off the show to run on the local stations. You know, that stuff you watch on TNT or during the afternoons on Cozy TV, that's syndication. But the contract in the olden days paid the actors residuals. One of the operating theories was, well, you paid me for the original performance, but every time you re-air the program, you make money selling advertising in that program. So I should make money because you're using my image and my work again. And that actually makes sense. You pay me for my original work, but then you re-air it and you make more money. So I should get more money for it too. 
And then when you sell off that program to run it in syndication, you make money off of that too. So I should make money off of that too. That's the concept of the residuals. Now, as you know, summer reruns don't really exist anymore. I mean, they still run reruns occasionally. But instead of reruns, networks and cable channels have started running summer shows like America's Got Talent or The Amazing Race or The Bachelor, which have now become staples all year round. AGT, for instance, is exclusively a summer show and they run that and they run it in repeat all throughout the summer so that they don't have to rerun the original series they ran from September through March. That's why they don't run summer reruns anymore, because those production companies don't want to pay residuals. That's one aspect of how the business has evolved. Now, if you remember back in the 90s, early 2000s, you could buy TV series all the time. You could buy series on VHS. You could buy them on DVD. If you wanted The Rockford Files, for instance, or CSI, you could go buy a season or two or ten of whatever series you wanted. But as you might expect, when that first started happening, the actors were upset because they weren't getting residuals for those things. I believe it was the strike back in the 1980s that got the actors residual payments for DVD sales. But why do you think that so many series haven't made it to DVD? And why do you think that the companies aren't putting stuff on DVD or Blu-ray or VHS anymore? Well, we know why VHS. But they're not selling series on hard media anymore because they don't want to have to pay the actors for it. They don't want to pay residuals for the sales of DVDs. And why do you think that they're pulling shows off of your cable channels? Why do you think HBO is not airing shows like they used to? Why do you think Netflix doesn't have the same library that it used to? Why do you think Disney Plus is taking stuff down off of their streaming service? It's because they don't want to have to pay for residuals. They don't want to have to pay the actors for repeated viewings. Because think about that for a second. And let's just use the show Willow that was on Disney Plus for a very brief period of time and has now been taken down. Now, I'm sure there's a way they can figure out how many times a show is viewed when it's in Disney Plus's library. I mean, I'm sure there's a way to figure out how many times it's been downloaded, how many times it's been viewed. I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming, knowing the way electronics are, that there's a way to figure that out. But I'm also going to guess that that way is probably proprietary with each company. They don't want to give up the secrets on how they figure these things out. So they keep it secret. Because to pay residuals, to pay actors for every repeated viewing of a show, you have to reveal how many times the show has been viewed. I mean, it's easy to keep track of DVD sales. You can just get all the receipts from all the retailers. I mean, it'll take time, but you can do it. I mean, they've always counted how many records somebody sells. They're always able to determine a box office. You can determine how many sales there are of the CSI seasons. So it's easier to calculate residuals. My point in explaining all that is that the industry changed with the streaming model. The industry changed when they stopped selling DVDs. And the industry is changing with the advent of AI. And the actors are aware. The actors are aware that they've been overlooked and they've been run around for decades because the powers that be have continued to change the industry to reduce the amount of money that they can make. The same is true with writers. It's a little different with writers, as we talked about a minute ago. But the industry has changed to eliminate or at least minimize the writer's participation in the industry. It's been a slow evolution over the decades. But the bottom line has always been that the corporations, Warner Brothers, Paramount, Universal, all of the movie companies, all of the TV production companies, 
They want to maximize their profits at the expense of the creatives who give them the product that makes their very existence possible. If you didn't have writers, if you didn't have actors, Paramount, Universal, Warner Brothers, all of those companies would just simply not exist because there'd be no product for them to sell. But rather than split the profits, or rather than even carve off a small portion of the profits to compensate the creatives who make the product possible, the companies want to keep all of the profits for themselves. And that is what the strike is about. I know that's a very superficial explanation. That may even be a more complicated explainer than I thought that it was going to be, but I think that that covers the major issues. But I wanted to put that out there because I think it's important to support the creators, the actors, the writers, the people who give us the things that our dreams are made of, the stories that we love to watch. There's no way you should side with anybody but them, at least as far as I'm concerned. All right, shifting gears. I don't want to spend too much time on this because this is probably even denser stuff than the writer's actor strike, but I wanted to put this out there too. I mentioned the Trump indictments at the beginning. Trump has been indicted on federal charges for his intentional mishandling of top-secret documents. I'm not going to get into the politics of this. I don't think it's really a secret what my politics on this are, and I don't think it's a secret what my issues are with Trump. We've talked about it a few times. But I wanted to talk about indictments in general very briefly, and then just talk about my mystification about how this guy can still be the front-runner for the Republican nomination. So an indictment is a document that's part of a process in both the state and federal courts. Trump is facing federal indictments because there's a special prosecutor involved in investigating his handling of the classified documents. He's also facing indictments at the state level. Georgia is investigating his interference with the Georgia election back in 2020. These are criminal charges, and they're very serious criminal charges. I'm also editing this to add there's been additional indictments handed down since I recorded this implicating Trump for his involvement in the January 6th insurrection, which we'll talk about at another time, but more serious criminal charges. An indictment is just a formal charging document. It's not a finding of guilt, but it's the result of an investigation undertaken by a prosecutor who makes a presentation to a grand jury. There are two kinds of juries in the criminal system. There's the grand jury, and then there's the pettit jury. The pettit jury is the one we're all familiar with. That's the jury we see on TV. Perry Mason is in front of a pettit jury. In a criminal case, that's 12 people in a box with alternatives. They have alternatives in case somebody gets sick or has to recuse themselves or has to step out. There are alternate jurors in a pettit jury. But in a criminal case, it's 12 jurors in a box, and they determine guilt or innocence. Actually, they determine guilt or not guilty. They don't actually determine innocence. That's a distinction that's very, very important, but few people remember it. Juries don't find people innocent. They find them not guilty. That doesn't mean that they didn't do it. It just means the state didn't prove its case. But that's a separate issue. See how easy it is for me to get off the track? We're not even talking pettit juries today. We're talking grand juries. The grand jury does the investigation. When a prosecutor wants to present a case, a criminal case, and it's above a misdemeanor, it's a felony case, they have to make a presentation to a grand jury. At the federal level, a grand jury consists of between 16 and 23 members. A prosecutor presents sworn witness testimony and physical evidence. Physical evidence can be pictures of classified documents, for instance, along with testimony from sworn witnesses who testify in person before the grand jury. 
The target of a grand jury investigation can also testify, although that doesn't often happen. For a number of reasons, not the least of which is defense attorneys are not allowed in front of the grand jury with the witness. The defendant himself or herself can go testify before the grand jury, but anything they say can be used against them. And if you don't have a lawyer there protecting your interests, anything that you say, anything a prosecutor can get you to say while you're testifying in front of a grand jury can come back to haunt you. Now, the grand jury, just like the petit jury, the grand jury is made up of just ordinary people. You can get a summons for jury duty, and the jury duty can be for a petit jury, which is a trial, or it can be a grand jury. And a grand jury sits for a period of weeks or months, depending on whether it's a state or federal grand jury. But they can sit for a period of time and hear many, many cases during that period of time. They might meet once a week. They might meet once a month. But whenever they meet, you have to go to the courthouse. You have to attend whatever hearings that the prosecutor schedules. And then you have to weigh in on whatever it is that's being investigated by that grand jury. The grand jury's role is to determine whether there is probable cause for criminal charges. Now, probable cause is a term of art. That's a legal term. It basically means, does it look like there's enough here to charge this guy? It doesn't mean that this guy or girl is guilty. It just means, is there evidence, and we'll use Trump as an example, because he has been indicted. Is there enough evidence to show that Trump had classified documents that he shouldn't have had and that he mishandled them? Is there evidence of that? Because the grand jury found that there was evidence of this, they indicted him. Now, that just means that the prosecutor now has enough to go to court and present it to a judge and say, we're going to trial on this issue to try to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a higher standard than the probable cause standard that the grand jury uses, beyond a reasonable doubt that he mishandled classified documents. So what has happened is the special prosecutor, and there's a special prosecutor in the case, it's a prosecutor who is independent from the Department of Justice, somebody hired specifically to do this investigation to avoid the appearance of impropriety. In other words, to make sure that it doesn't look like the fix is in. So the special prosecutor has found enough to get several indictments against Trump, and the case is set for trial. By the way, Normal people, at least 16 ordinary citizens listening to all of the evidence, reviewing all of the testimony, looking at all of the pictures, coming to a conclusion that there's enough there to indict this guy. So now that we have the indictment, what does that mean? It means we go to trial. Now, as I said, the indictment itself is not a conviction. But the fact that you can get an indictment is a strong indication that there's some evidence there that's not looking real good for the defendant, in this case, Trump. The fact that the state of Georgia is also seeking criminal indictments for interference with the election laws of the state of Georgia is also a bad thing, or at least it should be. The fact that it's likely that they're going to get indictments against Trump on these charges is not a good thing, or at least it shouldn't be. An indictment, again, not a finding of guilt. But the problem that I have is that with so much evidence out there of criminal wrongdoing. With all of the smoke and mirrors that this guy throws up and uses to distract, the fact that they were still able to get federal indictments against him should be a huge problem to any political aspirations this guy has. He shouldn't even be considering a run for president. People should be talking about the fact that he's got these indictments hanging over his head. People should be, and by people I mean journalists, the mainstream media, all of the news organizations, CNN, NBC, ABC, CBS, AP, Reuters, 
they should all be leading any coverage of him with the fact that the indicted former president is still running for president. As someone who's been around for a long time, I hate to go back to that old saw that this never would have been the case years ago, but this never would have been the case years ago. Any president who had done what this guy has done, and we've all seen what he's done. Even if he hasn't been found guilty yet, there are so many smoking guns out there. It just looks and smells bad. But 30 years ago, all of this stuff would have been disqualifying. He wouldn't have a political leg to stand on. There's no possible way he would get any serious coverage as a potential candidate for president. The fact that there are criminal indictments already lodged against him and that more are pending and likely to come out very, very soon, it should be disqualifying. And the fact that it's not is not only shocking to me, but it's a sad commentary on our society today. I tried to keep the politics out of that last part. I really did. But it just amazes me that this is where we are. I can't tell you how frustrating it is to be living in this country in this day and age. The way the politics are, the way the news coverage is, the way people act and treat each other. It's just astounding to me. But I don't want to go down that road either. This isn't a rant about that today. It's just an observation and an explainer of a few things that are going on in the news. That's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being here. As always, I appreciate your support, and I appreciate you taking the time to be here. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves, and I'll see you when I see you.